Well, Heavenly Father, oh Lord, once again, I'm so humbled by the fact that, Lord, we get to open up the Bible and hear you speak and see the great God of the universe, the majestic and holy one revealed on the pages of your word. We pray that this morning, Father, as we, uh, Lord, look into your word, that you would give us soft and tender hearts to hear the message of Colossians chapter 1, and that, Lord, we would walk away different today, applying your word to our thinking, to our perspective, to our attitudes, to our mindset, to our very practical lives, Lord, to the way that we speak. We ask you all of these things, and that you would be glorified in the preaching and application of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are back in Colossians chapter 1, so turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. Uh, We have been out of this great book for a couple of Sundays, but I think very fruitful Sunday mornings. And we, if you remember, we started a series titled Christ-Centered Ministry, Christ-Centered Ministry from verses 24 to 29. And today we want to look at the third part of that series in Colossians 1, 28 through 29. How do you define successful ministry? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What constitutes biblical effective ministry? Have you ever considered that question? Uh, I have spent many years just pondering that question because I love the church. And I want to know what it means to minister in the church faithfully in accordance with God's word. And I remember in preparation for a conference on the gospel uh, in Southeast Asia a few years ago, I did a survey um, just trying to delve into that particular question. What constitutes successful ministry? And so I went in and started doing a, a survey on the latest church growth movements and the latest strategies and how key leaders, not only in our country but all around the world, how they define effective ministry individually and as a collective group of team leaders within that, that entity. And I found some interesting answers, and I want to present some of those for you. Uh, First of all, in talking about how to grow your church and do successful, effective ministry, um, one particular leadership group said that you must offer the best programs that people can choose from in the church. You've got to have great programs, great programs for parents, great programs for kids, great programs for men and for women. And, and along the lines of that, you have to be on the forefront of the most innovative philosophies of ministry and, and, and church structures that you can possibly be on. Subscribe to the latest magazines about how to have a successful ministry. Be on the forefront of innovation in ministry. Another guy said, have or add a contemporary service to your boring Sunday morning services. <laughs> Add a contemporary service with the latest music. In fact, you don't even have to have Christian music. Put on some Van Halen or Led Zeppelin in the background for some background noise. Because after all, many people can identify with that kind of music. And then they're going to bring their youth and their kids into the church if they can identify with the music. The important thing is to get them in the building. With regards to messages, shorten the messages at most to 20 minutes. At most That's a slap in my face right there because that never is going to happen. Or anybody who preaches up here for that matter for years, right? 
And not only that, shorten them to 20 minutes or less, but also do some dialogue from the pulpit. Because having an open mic, for instance, where people can, can are they, as they're hearing the message, they can, they can randomly walk up and start sharing their heart as what, what the Lord is teaching them in that moment. Because you want the people to own the Word of God and to own the vision and direction of the church. So have an open mic so that everybody can throw in their two cents about the message. How about this? The content of messages should not be offensive. Don't be offensive. In fact, here are some things that they mentioned. Don't expose sin. People already know they're sinners. Don't expose it. Don't call it out. Don't use bad words like sin, repentance, hell, or judgment. Remove those from your manuscripts. You don't want to offend people. And worse, don't mention to people the cost of following Christ for crying out loud. That there's actually suffering involved in following Christ. You're gonna, you're gonna, people are going to run away from your church building. How about this? If you want to be known as a hospitable, friendly church, strategically, purposefully, deliberately sit people who are highly social all over the sanctuary to reach out to the new visitors that are coming in. Make sure that there's, there's no spot in the building that is not uncovered. If you want them to come back, they need to know that you're friendly. How about this? If you really want people to show up on time, and one of our elders shared a, a testimony about this at the elder retreat, so it's a, it's, it's a fact. Um, if you want people to show up on time, If you want people to really get involved in ministry, give away prizes. (laughs) Especially from noteworthy places like Starbucks. That sells. Okay? Ten buck gift cards for Starbucks for showing up right at 9 a.m. How about that? Uh, Every, or for you guys, 10.45. Or even give out tickets to theme parks. Right? For your service or your kids' service in the church. I mean, you really want people motivated. People love prizes. Come on. How about this? And I don't know if I disagree with this one, frankly. And you'll know why right now. Serve great food. <laughs> Serve great. Honestly, I agree with that one, so I don't know if that causes you to stumble, but every fellowship time must have good food. Amen? Amen. I mean, we have a chef, state of the art chef here, right? Our brother who just cooks, cooks up a storm every month. So I don't disagree with that one. But we know, right, that we're not, we're not serving great food because we expect people and we want people to come in the building and people to get turned on by what's going on here at Calvary Bible Church because they have great food. Hey, they're serving linguine that Sunday afternoon. Everybody should show up that day. We don't do it for that reason. We do it because it's a good thing to do. We have so many examples in Scripture of fellowship over food and communion happening in those places. And in foreign countries, in fact, food is a huge, huge thing in church fellowship. We don't do it with the motivation of bringing people into the church or adding numbers to the church, beloved. And I would say that with many of these examples, which are very common and very typical, by the way, um, it's not that every single aspect or element of what I just shared as to common opinions about, about how to do effective ministry are wrong or utterly sinful. There are some good things to learn from. But at the end of the day, this is not what it's about, is it? Men come up with all kinds of methods and strategies to do ministry in the church and to grow churches. And even godly men who mean well, in many cases, compromise what they, do, what they know to be right and succumb to man-driven traditions and methods. Maybe to please 
members in the church or to appeal to those who really don't want anything to do with Christ and his church in the end. This is why it is so important, and for me it's been so fruitful to, to study this passage of Colossians 1, 24 to 29, and look at this crucial theme of Christ-centered ministry and what that looks like and some of those guiding principles for our church as individuals, as families, and as a corporate body. And so if you remember the last two Sundays that we have been in Colossians, we've seen the first two of three foundations of Christ-centered ministry, and today we want to look at the third one. And where have we been? We saw in foundation number one, the right mindset of Christ-centered ministry. That we must arm our thinking as we serve the Lord and His people with an attitude of joy. Not just go through the motions, but that we should have find joy. And that's a battle, isn't it? It's a battle to serve with that mindset. Transcending the circumstances of life and finding joy in serving Christ and His people. That's a battle for all of us, beloved. Also, the expectation of suffering must be something that we must arm ourselves with. We're going to suffer in ministry. There's going to be opposition. A commitment to faithfulness because Christ has called us to serve him. He's delivered us from sin so that we may serve him. So we should be faithful to fulfilling our purpose to serve Christ and his people. And then we also saw that the right mindset encompasses a devotion to selfless service. We live in a world that's all about what can I get? What have you done for me lately? Not so for Christ's people. Christ's people are to be asking the question, how might I serve my brethren instead of how they might serve me? So foundation number one was the right mindset from verses 24 to 25. Foundation number two is the right message in verses 26 to 27. We saw two precious truths there in verses 26 through 27. The mystery of the gospel, that as a preacher of the word of God, Paul preached to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and he considered that a privilege and a priority in his life. We saw also the glory of the gospel, that the gospel message is glorious because it contains the infinite riches of those who, for those who turn from their sins and trust Christ as Lord and Savior, awaiting for us, beloved, in the present and in the future, are infinite riches. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We saw that the gospel is glorious because it includes Gentiles, those who were previously far off, who were rejected and the outcasts, but now have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That the gospel is glorious because of the central person of the gospel, Christ, who has come to reside within his redeemed. He is the Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the right message, the gospel. This morning we want to look at foundation number three of Christ-centered ministry, the right method in verses 28 through 29. When it comes to what ministry looks like, these two verses are some of my favorite in the Bible. This is Christianity, basic Christian ministry, beloved, 101 right here. Basic Christian ministry. These two verses answer the question for us, what does ministry consist of at a fundamental level? And verses 28 through 29 are such an important text for us because we tend to complicate in churches, church life way too much. We make ministry about many peripheral matters such as property, such as the kinds of programs that we run, such as pragmatics. We ask the question that is a pragmatic one, does this work? Does this work? That's very typical in many churches, that ministry would be driven by asking the questions, does this work? 
We run things or prioritize politics. There are power struggles and agendas in churches. Even those of us who think that we don't do this, we do this more than we realize, often without even thinking about it. And the reason, beloved, that we, have, we all carry this baggage into the church is because we, 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 we have previous church experiences, perhaps, in our background, and we, we, we bring those back into this current church situation, and we want those things to begin to dictate how we do ministry. Many of us bring our, our secular jobs or circles or business backgrounds into how we do ministry, and we think that those principles ought to drive the way that we do ministry in the church. Or sometimes we just flat out have wrong interpretations from the Bible related to what ministry entails and what is really most important in church life. If we are not careful, we can bring erroneous methods of doing ministry into the church. And what this passage helps us do, beloved, is refocus on what Christ-centered ministry looks like. Like the lenses of a microscope when adjusted, magnify that object and clarify the view of that object so that we see that object clearly. So it is that the Word of God does that for us, does it not? It clarifies for us. Our eyes are opened, our spiritual eyes are opened, and our minds are renewed so that we're able to refocus and recalibrate on what is most important and essential in the church. So when ministry seems blurry or complicated, or confusing, discombobulated, distorted. This passage clarifies beautifully what faithful Christ-centered ministry looks like in the church. So what are the priorities of faithful ministry? What are those priorities that we can glean from the Apostle Paul and what he writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 28 through 29? I find four priorities here of faithful Christ-centered ministry in the church. Four priorities of faithful Christ-centered ministry in the church. The first one is this, priority number one. Faithful ministry is first and foremost Christ-focused. Faithful ministry is Christ-focused. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. We proclaim Him. Literally, whom we proclaim. And we know who the whom represents. From the end of verse 27, he's talking about the Christ in you, the hope of glory. This Christ, the hope of glory, is the Christ that we proclaim. Christ is the focus of Paul's ministry. But not only Paul's ministry. Because if you notice, he also brings in his companions into this. He says, we proclaim Christ. Up until this point in verses 24 to 27, some seven different times, Paul has used the singular personal pronoun to refer to himself and his ministry. But now he includes Timothy and Epaphras who are with him by using the plural pronoun. says, we proclaim Christ. So the focus for them as a collective group is to focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would add to us this morning... By way of reminder yet again that the priority, beloved, of everything that we do in our personal life, whether it be in our pursuit of sanctification or as a collective body of believers, the focus should be on Christ. The focus should be on Him. The verb proclaim here means to publicly make known, to declare, to announce. And it's in the present tense, which means that Christ is to be our our continual, habitual proclamation. Christ is to be the centerpiece of our proclamation. Now, that's a pretty astounding statement and exhortation from Paul. I mean, why? What, what um, qualifies Christ 
to be the centerpiece of everything that we do. I mean, there are many false teachers out there who want your devotion and who want your allegiance. There are many world leaders who are competing for power and for your attention via the media or through their disasters that they're doing all over the world and they want your devotion and their allegiance. Pretty soon we're going to be voting on the next president of the United States. And those candidates are going to be wanting to promote themselves so that you vote for them and you focus upon them. What makes Jesus so different that he's to be the center of our attention and focus, beloved? What makes Christ so unique that he is to be the supreme object of our proclamation and focus? Well, all we need to do is be reminded from the previous context who Christ is, do we not? And his amazing, unfathomable credentials. That there is no one like him. And then we're reminded of the fact that this is not just one man's philosophy. The Apostle Paul, who was especially commissioned by God as an apostle to the Gentiles to have his focus upon Christ. It was all of his partner's main focus and priority. And it is to be ours as a church by virtue of the majesty of who Jesus is. In fact, look at verses 15 through 20. And I just want to remind us and rehearse these beautiful verses again and be reminded of of the things that Paul has said about the Son of God through whom God accomplished redemption. With relation to God, we saw in verse 15 that Christ is preeminent and supreme. Notice, He, the Son, from the end of verse 13, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And if you remember, we said that Christ is a a share in the same being and essence and nature and divine attributes of God. Contrary to the false teachers in Colossae who were saying that he was the greatest of created beings, that is false. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. He's not a created being or simply the greatest of created beings. He is supreme and preeminent by virtue of the fact that the Son is God as the Father is God. He is God of very God. Notice in verses 16 through 17, with relation to creation, Christ is supreme. Paul says in verse 16, For by him, or in him, literally, in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Three different prepositional phrases in verse 16. At the beginning of verse 16, for in him all things were created, highlights the fact that there's nothing created that was created, little or big or gigantous, that was created independent of Christ. And then at the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him. He is the divine agent of creation, the divine architect who carried out the order of the Father in creating the universe. And for him, he's the goal of creation at the end of verse 16. And then in verse 17, he's before all things. Was Jesus created? No, he has always been. He's eternal. He is pre-existing. And in him, all things hold together. He's the one who sustains every little tiny atom in our universe. Otherwise, everything would go into chaos were it not for the eternal son of God who sustains it all, beloved. With relation to creation, Paul told us Christ is supreme, is supreme. What about with relation to the church? Notice verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. 
And that term head has to do with sovereign, supreme ruler. There are no rivals to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king. He's the sovereign one. He's the sustainer of his church as well. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Paul says Christ is supreme. He's the king by virtue of his glorious resurrection. And he is the pioneer of a new creation, beloved. One day we will rise from the dead and it will be because God raised up his own son from the dead. And we're all following. And then in verses 19 through 20, there Paul highlights the fact that, that Christ is the one through whom the Father has reconciled all things. Christ lived and, and died and rose from the dead in order to, to deliver us and rescue us from the wrath of God, to forgive us of our sins so that we may be right with our Creator. And I would remind anyone sitting in here this morning who has not given his or her life to Christ, you need to be reconciled to God, your Maker. And the only one through whom you can do this is the supreme, exalted Lord Jesus Christ who came to die for your sins. You must put your faith in Him alone that you may be forgiven of your sins. You see, God has provided His Son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins. And salvation can never come by works, by the keeping of the law, James 2.10 says that whoever stumbles in one point of the law, he has become guilty of it all. There's no way that you can work your way to heaven. There's only one mediator between God and men. The man is Christ Jesus, the God-man, in accordance with this passage here. He is the only one able to do that. See, there is no one like Christ, beloved. There's no one like Christ, No one who has these marvelous credentials, who is more worthy of our affection and our allegiance. No one in this world, past, present, or future, can make the astounding claims that God's Word makes concerning Christ. And because of who He is and what He has done, then it follows, beloved, that Paul would remind us here in Colossians that Christ is to be the focal point of all ministry. He says, we proclaim Christ in light of who He is and what He has done. We proclaim Him. This is why he says in verse 18, Paul tells us that Christ is to have first place in everything. That, by the way, is first and foremost a statement of fact. Christ is preeminent. He is the eternal King of the universe. Right now, He reigns supreme, and He's going to deliver the final death blow someday. But this is a present reality. He's preeminent. He's supreme. But that reality is to find itself true and our subjective experience in how we live and how we do ministry. We ought to live that reality out here in the here and now. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ. Why? Because there's no Christianity without Christ, beloved. There is no Christian ministry or Christianity without Christ. You know why? Because without Christ, there's no forgiveness of sins. And without Christ, there's no peace or reconciliation with God. There's no deliverance from our brokenness, our lostness, our alienation from God. We are still dead in our sins without Christ. Because no one but Christ, who is both God and sinless man, qualifies as the one who can atone for our sins. Without Christ, God's wrath is upon us. We are destined for eternal damnation, away from the presence of God for eternity. In some, without Christ, mark it, life is meaningless, purposeless, and hopeless. Listen, without Christ, 
The trials that we have experienced this past year are for nothing and they're hopeless, beloved. Without Christ, your struggles as an individual with your sin, private or public, and you're wrestling in the power of the Spirit with sanctification, without Christ, it's hopeless. Your marriage difficulties are hopeless without Christ. Your struggles with parenting are hopeless. Listen, without Christ, all of the devastation and wickedness and godlessness in our country and all over the world is reason to despair because at the end of the day, there is no conquering Christ who is coming back to relieve us of all pain and suffering that sin brings. Because Christ reigns, we can anticipate a new heavens and a new earth, beloved, where no more sin exists, no more suffering, and no more pain. This is why Paul is saying, take your eyes off of peripheral matters, proclaim Christ, focus your attention upon Christ. Because of everything that he has just told these Colossian believers concerning who Christ is and what Christ has done in accordance with the eternal plan of God the Father. See, we often operate in the church with little thought or concern for what Christ wants and to the fact that He is the main person that we should be focusing upon, beloved. Christ is not just a label that we talk, tack on to our Christianity. He's not that. Christ is not just the one who gets us into the door of this Christian club thing. Christ is everything. He is our life. He's our very life, not an afterthought. That's how Paul puts it, in fact, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory, he says. Christ is our life. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, our ministry and our message, beloved, is not about man-made methods, self-help manuals, innovative philosophy, innovative methods of ministry, meditation techniques, emotional tactics to get people all worked up into a frenzy, to get people into the church building. Our message is about a person. We proclaim Christ with whom we're intimately involved with, the Christ in us and each of us, the hope of glory. Christianity is about a personal relationship with a real person, Christ, with whom we have sweet fellowship. But the question is this, what does that then look like? How does, how does that focus upon Christ in ministry and in life manifest itself in the life of the church? How does that show itself in the life of the church? This fellowship with Christ needs to find visible, practical expression with real people, real relationships in his church. And that's priority number two. The second priority of faithful ministry is that it is discipleship-oriented ministry. Discipleship-oriented. Not only is it Christ-focused, but it's discipleship-oriented ministry. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Where faithful ministry is happening and taking place and exists, 
There permeates a discipleship-oriented culture. Listen to me again. Where faithful ministry is vibrant and happening, there exists and permeates a highly committed discipleship-oriented culture. Now, as we examine the second point, there are three crucial commitments, sort of sub-points under the second major point for you. Three crucial commitments that I want to highlight from verse 28 that are true of a discipleship-oriented ministry, okay? The first commitment is this. Discipleship-oriented ministry is word-saturated. Discipleship-oriented ministry is word-saturated. And there are two beautiful words here. Admonishing and teaching, which modify the main verb we proclaim Christ and tell us what this proclamation looks like in Christian ministry. Now, this is really important. These, these words, with these two words, Paul is not speaking primarily about evangelism, though certainly preaching Christ to an unbeliever is the only way salvation can happen, right? And that's applied by turning from your sins and putting your faith in Christ, who is the only mediator. But Paul is primarily talking here about Christian maturity. The emphasis here is not an evangelistic one, but primarily edificational in nature. Notice the first word. In verse 28, admonishing, he says, admonishing. The word is from the Greek word nutheteo, which means to put or place in the mind. And the word has a corrective connotation. It carries the idea of of warning or cautioning a wandering Christian who has strayed from the path that honors and glorifies Christ. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, for instance, the word admonishing. Paul says there that believers are to admonish the unruly. Who are the unruly? But those who are in need of, need of correction, who need admonishment, who are wandering from the path. He says, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. In Acts chapter 20, And verse 31, Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. And there he reminds the Ephesian elders of his ministry while amongst them that he did not cease, he says, to admonish each one with tears. So part of of Paul's loving ministry to the Ephesian believers and the elders was this ministry of admonishment, of correction, of cautioning so that they would not wander from the path. And he said he did it. He did it to each one with tears. There's the heart behind it with tenderness and compassion. So this word admonish is corrective in nature. It has to do with warning someone of impending consequences if they continue on a harmful or potentially destructive path. Notice the second word there, teaching. Teaching is from didasco, which means to teach or to instruct. The word generally has to do with positive instruction. It's the, the, the formal or informal impartation or communication of truth or of Christian doctrine. In some contexts, it refers to the authoritative speaking of the word of God centered on the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, When we get up and preach on Sunday mornings, you may already know this. We're getting up and we're imparting the truth of God's word to you, are we not? And we're imparting Christian doctrine, Christian teaching. I have nothing to say if I don't open this book. But I'm imparting to you, I'm teaching you Christian doctrine. 
pointing you to the greatness of God, to the excellency of Christ, to your need to repent from sin and to pursue Christ's likeness and holiness and purity. We're instructing you and at the same time we're admonishing, we're confronting sin via the word of God. That's taking place every Sunday morning from the main pulpit, in the fellowship groups, in our small groups. We're having this teaching and admonishing ministry. But the danger, beloved, is this. Oftentimes we think about that, or we look at passages like this, and we think, well, that's really for the pastors, the elders, the teachers, or the the trained biblical counselors in the church, right? I mean, those are the people that should be doing this. That's who it applies to primarily. Um, That's not the case, is it? It's not. Certainly, elders and pastors should be leading the way and proclaiming the truth publicly and privately. But these are to be done by everyone in the church, beloved. We are all to be speaking the truth in love to one another. Ephesians 4.16. Speaking the truth in love to one another. And I want to show you this, that this includes everyone, every believer. Colossians 3.16. Go there with me. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Here, both words, teaching and admonishing, appear. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, here it is, teaching and admonishing, what does it say next? One another. This is to be done toward, from one believer to another believer. Yes, leaders lead the way, but everyone is to be involved in this with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, there, here, Paul includes every single believer, the Colossian believers, in the speaking ministry. So not only should elders and pastors admonish and teach, but we should be doing this with one another. We are to be pouring and investing the word of Christ into one another. In fact, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, Paul, writing to the Roman believer, says this, And concerning you, my brethren, writing to Christians, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves, plural, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and listen to this, and able also to admonish one another. So Paul has the confidence that these believers, obviously that they're Christians, that they're growing in goodness, that they're filled with knowledge and continuing to grow in that, but also that they're able to, to caution one another, to have a speaking ministry of warning one another, of counseling one another, if you want to put it that way. Everyone is to be doing this. Every believer has a speaking ministry, beloved, if you are a Christian. Not just pastors, elders, biblical counselors in our church. All of us are to be doing this. Um, now, some of us are, are pursuing this actively, and I commend you for that. And you're, you're, I mean, you want to help other people, and you engage other people, and you want to be speaking the truth of God's Word into other people's lives. For others of us, we need some encouragement, do we not? Um, we look at this passage, and we hear Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, that this should be something that you ought to be doing as well. And you're thinking, man, who am I? You know, who am I? I have my own sin struggles. I have my own weaknesses. I need encouragement of my own. I mean, who am I to even go up to somebody else and start telling them how to live their life when I don't have all my ducks in a row myself? You know, can I encourage you? There is always something that you can impart to another believer. You cannot ever use the excuse 
that because of your weaknesses and frailties, you're not able to come alongside of one, uh, another believer and speak the truth into that believer's life. Beloved, listen, at the end of the day, we are all weak and frail, are we not? Each of us are. I don't get up here every Sunday morning because I have my act together, beloved, and I'm 100% holy and perfected already. I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. I'm striving for Christ-likeness just as much as you are in the power of the Spirit of God, seeking to be guided by the Word of God. Each of us have weaknesses. Can I encourage you? If you're in that place where you just, you just think to yourself, I don't, I, don't, I don't know who I can encourage, there's always somebody that you can encourage that you could speak the truth of God's Word into their life. Always. For others of us, I think that there needs to be a special care taken as to the manner in which we approach one another. And to the manner, it's not just important to be engaging one another, in other words, or to be teaching and admonishing one another, but it's important how we do it as well, beloved. And I want you to go to Galatians chapter 6, just a couple of pages back. Galatians 6, if all of us are to be engaged actively in discipleship, teaching and admonishing one another, how should we do it? With what kind of attitude? What are some warnings for us, some cautions for us? Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, speaking to believers, even if anyone is caught in any trespass. So the implication is there will be sin in the church. When that happens, what should we do? It says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And the spiritual here is not some super duper Christian in the church who is the elite uh, uh, spiritual person in our body. We're talking from the context of those who are led by the Spirit of God, those who are walking in loving obedience, step in step with the Spirit of God, putting to death the deeds of the flesh actively in the power of the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the spiritual, if you will from the context at the end of chapter 5. So you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And notice that word restore has to do with repairing a broken or dislocated limb. We all have memories of that happening to us or to somebody else. How did the doctor handle that dislocated limb or broken bone? With care and gentleness, right? With tenderness, because... That person is very fragile in that moment. This is the way that we ought to be approaching one another, teaching and admonishing one another, seeking to restore one another with this kind of repairing kind of of an attitude and approach. And look at what he says, in a spirit of gentleness, meekness. Where does that come from? Gentleness comes from a recognition of, of the fact that we, before God, we don't stack up and measure up in accordance with who God is. And so we're brought low when we compare ourselves to the greatness and the holiness of God and we realize that in our dealings with one another, we are not on a different level than anybody else if we're comparing ourselves to the right person, right? Who is our almighty God. That leads to internal humility that manifests itself in external gentleness and meekness in our dealings with one another. And then he gives a warning. He says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That's a warning. That's a caution. That none of us should be on a high horse ever thinking that we are above temptation. Right? None of us. 
And that tempers and frames the way that we approach one another. That we do approach one another with a restorative kind of an attitude, with gentleness and meekness. Remembering that we too have weaknesses of our own, and were it not for the grace of God, we would be in the same place. So it's not just important, beloved. Go back uh, forward to Colossians. It's not just important to take upon this responsibility to teach and admonish one another and to pursue it aggressively and tenaciously. But it's also important to be careful with how we do it, how we come alongside of one another. I think that as I kept pondering and reflecting upon this, I just kept meditating upon the fact that it's so important in light of this to recognize where people are at. That not everybody falls under the same category, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, I read it earlier, says this, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. There's three categories right there. The unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, and in each of those instances we're called to engage those people in different ways, right? Not everybody falls under the same category. See, we have... We have but Christians who feel like their job is to size up another believer, tack a label on them, and then no longer engage them anymore because they have their issues and after all, they can't grow anymore. It's this who they are. And we box somebody in and we put them on the shelf and this is the category that they fall under. Rebellious forevermore, right? Sinner forevermore. Lethargic person forevermore. And we no longer engage them anymore. We have to be very careful not to categorize people, beloved. Not to be so quick to size people up and not help people grow. Who are we at the end of the day, beloved? We're all a work in progress, are we not? And are using the word to help others. At one point or another, a Christian may be, may be unruly. So what does that Christian need? You to come alongside of that person and, and, and administer admonishment, if you will, and do it gently in accordance with Galatians chapter 6. Caution them. Hey, brother, I love you. And for the glory of God, and I just, I just care about you. And the path that you're on is wrong. And I want to show you from God's word where you need to walk in obedience to the Lord. This is harmful for you. And because I care for you, I, I want what's best for you. And I want what in your life what glorifies God the most. You're admonishing them and cautioning them, but you're doing it with a shepherd's heart, right? Or shepherd's heart. That's how we ought to do it. What about the faint-hearted? They don't need admonishment. What they need is encouragement. Encouragement. Maybe they're confused genuinely and they need to be encouraged. What about the weak? To the weak, we need to stake ourselves next to them, Right? And help them bear their own burden. And in all cases, in all categories, patience is needed, is it not? In all cases, patience is needed. So don't miss this. These speaking words, admonishing and teaching, coupled with Colossians 3.16, imply that speaking the truth by means of the Word of God, centered on the gospel of Christ, is to be the primary content of discipleship. The Word of God is to be the primary tool in our discipleship. This is why everything at Calvary Bible Church, by God's grace, is centered on the Word of God, is it not? Public preaching comes from the Word of God. Again, if I don't open up the Scriptures and expound the Scriptures, I have nothing to say and neither does anybody else who stands behind this pulpit. doesn't matter how popular they are. Okay? The preaching of the Word of God is centered on what God says. His revelation, not ours. Teaching, 
formally and informally in the context of Calvary. Everything is centered on the Word of God. Small groups, we encourage biblical content, solid books that point people to Scripture, not away from Scripture. These small groups are where people are imparted the Word of God and mutually shared and shaped by the Word of God. One-on-ones, women's small groups and and men's one-on-ones and women's one-on-ones are to be done with the Word of God at the forefront. We want to be a Scripture-saturated church, beloved. A Bible-centered, Scripture-saturated church. The Word is emphasized because we understand that it is the truth of God's Word centered on the Gospel that is the primary means by which Christians grow in the power of the Spirit as He convicts Christians of their sin and drives them toward sanctification, right? Giving maximum effort as believers in our pursuit of Christ. I love Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2 concerning the effectiveness of the Word of God and the impact that it has. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God searches the soul, beloved. It is effective, is it not? That's why it's the primary means by which we grow in discipleship. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. So the primary tool of discipleship is the word of God. Discipleship-oriented ministry is word-saturated. And secondly, commitment number two, discipleship-oriented ministry is comprehensive in scope. Comprehensive in scope. Notice verse 28. Three different times Paul says, every man. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Why does he repeat himself three different times, every man? It's for emphasis. He wants to make the point that this process that we call discipleship involves everyone, beloved. No one is exempt. No one is exempt. When you came to know Christ and there was a beautiful miracle of saving faith wrought in your heart and you responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you entered a process, a lifetime process of knowing, loving, following, promoting, sharing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a lifetime process, is it not? We are all as believers engaged in this process of discipleship of following Christ, of being conformed into the image of Christ. It's never-ending. The third commitment is this. Discipleship-oriented ministry is word-saturated, comprehensive in scope. And thirdly, third commitment, it's highly relational. Highly relational. Notice that Paul uses a beautiful little qualifying phrase in verse 28. He says, with or literally in all wisdom. The manner of our speaking the truth to one another is to be done in all wisdom, says Paul. And what is wisdom but the ability to take God's truth, take what you know and skillfully apply the truth of God's word to your life in a way that brings glory to God. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Wisdom is skillful, godly living that brings glory to Christ and to his word. Now think with me for a minute. If you're going to practice admonishing and teaching one another and do so in all wisdom, I think it requires two things of us. One, 
It requires that you yourself know the truth of God's word. If you're going to help somebody with their problems and bring them to the word of God, it requires that you yourself know the word of God, beloved, that you're growing in your knowledge and application of the word of God. But the second thing also that this requires, if you're going to engage people with an admonishing and teaching ministry in all wisdom, it requires that you would know people. It requires that you cultivate relationships with people. How are you going to consistently apply all wisdom in your speaking the truth into people's lives if you don't know the truth and you don't know people? How would you do that? Now, I'm not saying that in order to come alongside of another with the truth, that you must always have a relationship with them. Otherwise, you can never speak into their life. You must have a 20 to 30 year relationship with them so that you're able to speak the truth to their life. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the norm of our speaking of truth to one another should be, listen to me, relationally based and relationally driven. If you are going to help someone else apply the word with all wisdom, it requires that you know the word yourself and that you know the person. In biblical discipleship, beloved, listen to me. Our commitments to the word and to people come together. And this is by means of biblical relationships and the, and the aggressive, loving, gracious pursuit of relationships. A highly relational culture. The norm is to be getting to know people. And in the context of those relationships, we are able to rightly and skillfully apply sound wisdom from God to that person and vice versa, that person to us. Discipleship-oriented ministry, beloved, is highly relational. Now listen, this is one that every Christian in every church needs to work on. We know that every person is wired different. By this I mean that every person is unique as far as personalities go, likes and dislikes, background, life experiences, race, color, Christian journey, you name it. We're all different. But don't cop out and say that these differences, because you have differences with somebody, that it means that you shouldn't need to cultivate a genuine, heartfelt, relational disposition toward other people. Now, how you express friendship and love for others may be different than the way that I do it or someone else does it. But we should all have a heart to reach out, beloved, to befriend people in the body, to cultivate a loving disposition of approachability and friendship toward one another. We should each be cultivating a relational approach toward handling matters with one another. We need to work on this, do we not? Biblical Christian community that is discipleship-oriented doesn't consist of people just Bible-thumping one another or using our knowledge of Scripture to pharmaceutically or coldly categorize people, throw a couple of verses at them, and then tell them to come and see you the next time. People are not robots, beloved, or animals, for, for crying out loud. We are relational beings, are we not? You know where this flows from? This flows from the fact that we have a relational triune God. Think about this. The gospel solves a relational problem between sinners and God. 
God wants you to be reconciled to him. And he's made that possible by virtue of his son's death and resurrection applied to you as you turn from your sins and you trust Christ as Lord and Savior. And there's sweet relationship and fellowship with God possible in your life because of Christ. This is why John says in 1 John 1, 3, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is a relational, is relational language, is it not? A sharing of lives. Our fellowship with God is possible because an offensive, relational obstacle, namely sin, has been forgiven and solved in the death of Christ. So therefore, we are the friends of God and the children of God. The gospel solves a relational problem. And we have a triune God who is relational. So there is a theological undergirding for our need to be relational beings, beloved. Biblical discipleship is fundamentally relational in nature. And beloved, we need to work on relating better to one another. Can I say this? Not just toward those, those who, who like us. Those who are in our age brackets even. Those who are of our same race. Those who think, who, think, who think the way that we do. No. The beauty of the body of Christ is that we are all unique but one in Christ. We should all be cultivating a heart of outreach, beloved, as we do discipleship in the church. Speaking the truth to one another in the context of those beautiful, biblical, genuine, authentic relationships is the direction to go via Colossians 1, 28-29. Focus on being a good friend rather than on complaining why others are not good friends to you. This requires your time and your effort and your sacrifice. This requires that you learn to put yourself before others before yourself. Some of us are very introverted, but that's no excuse for you to be cold and indifferent to other people. It isn't. Some of us are extroverts, and we need to remember as extroverts not to allow our extrovert personalities to dominate other people so that they feel uncomfortable around us. Learn to ask some questions of others that are not as outgoing as you. Cultivate relationships, beloved. And in those beautiful, genuine Relationships, we're able to rightly in all wisdom apply the word of God, help people with their problems and their sins and vice versa. In a discipleship-oriented church, relationships are cultivated and relationships are valued regardless of how unique each one of us are. So listen, faithful Christ-centered ministry is Christ-focused. Christ's focus. Christ is the center and the circumference of all that we strive to do as individuals and as a corporate body. And faithful Christ-centered ministry is discipleship-oriented ministry where the tool is the Word of God. The scope is all Christians to be highly committed participants. And the approach is highly relational. Highly relational. And the next time that we're in Colossians, we're going to look at the Priorities three and four of faithful Christ-centered ministry. But can I give you some homework, okay? By way of application of these two points, if you are a believer and you are not plugged into the life of the church, if you're not in a fellowship group or a small group, I want to encourage you to contact an elder this week, okay? 
contact an elder, contact a shepherd, an under-shepherd, contact Ruth at the office, and ask for some information. And if you need to talk to somebody, you need somebody to answer some questions for you about how to get more involved, we want to be there to help you. We love and we care for you. We want you to be healthy spiritually. And in order for you to be healthy and vibrant and growing in your walk with Christ, you must be mutually involved with other Christians. Can you do that this week? Take that initiative. And I promise you that if you obey God's word in this area, he's going to greatly bless you and he's going to greatly bless your fellow brothers and sisters who are chomping at the bits to get to know you. Okay? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so clear in your word. Father, we don't need to be confused about the basics of ministry, what effective Christian ministry comes down to as individuals, as groups, as families, as a collective body, as a living organism. You are so clear. You want us to focus upon your son, make much of your son. You want us to be people who are getting to know one another and speaking your truth into one another's lives in a genuine, authentic way, motivated by love, with an attitude of gentleness, seeking the good of others and seeking the success of others in the power of your spirit. Father, help us, strengthen us. As we're going to learn next week, we need your power and your enabling strength to help us stay focused, Lord, in our building up of one another in this church. Lord, we want to be holy people. We want to be people who are conformed into the image of your son. We need you to help us And help us to remember that we need one another. That the beauty of your church, of your body, of this living organism as you have designed it, is so precious and so vital for our growth and our sanctification. Help us to remember how much we need one another. And how much we need your spirit to strengthen and empower us and to illumine us and to sanctify us. We ask you all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.